welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, good morning and welcome. As the video said, my name is Mandy Taylor. I'm the Kids Community Director. I'm so happy to see all of you here today. Thank you for wearing masks. We are continuing to follow the CDC guidelines. So thank you for respecting that ask as we're here today and protecting each other and loving each other well. Uh, Parents with little ones, if you need to leave this space, don't feel like you have to, but if you want to, the nursery or the basement twos and threes room is open. It is not staffed, but parents, you're welcome to go in there with your kids and utilize the toys and um, whatever else is available in those rooms. If you're new to Awaken, we're so glad you're here. We would love to connect with you. If you want to take a minute to go online and fill out a connect card, we will get in touch with you and get to know you better and um, answer any questions you might have about Awaken. And then at this point, we are only collecting tithes and offerings online. So if you do want to give, we appreciate you giving online. Thank you for that. Um, And while I'm up here, I would like to take a minute to celebrate what has happened in kids' community this summer. We did Camp Create. We had four different sessions. And this week, Thursday, we had our last one, and it was beautiful. We had about 30 kids and three artists teaching at the same time, kids from birth all the way to high school. It was a really lovely time, and I'm just so grateful for our artists that were willing to teach this summer to lead classes. We had about seven artists throughout the summer lead. We had lots of kids come. Thank you to parents who were willing to bring their kids and sign up and all the things we had to do to um, create and make that beauty happen. So I am up here actually to open us with a call to worship. I've chosen to read a prayer by Macrina Wiedercare. Sister Mary Macrina served as a spiritual director at St. Scholastic of Monastery in Fort Smith, Arkansas for 60 years. Macrina's reflections and prayers have been formative to my faith, and I chose this prayer in response to Micah's teaching today about the Lord's Table. The aspect I love about the Lord's Table is thinking about who I can invite to or how I can build community around that table. And as I thought about that, I thought, As much as I love that, sometimes at times I feel like maybe God's presence isn't there or I'm not feeling God's presence at the table. So this is a prayer, a little bit about that. Please stand if you're able and we will open up our morning of worship together. Song to a Silent Stranger. Psalm 109.1. God whom I praise, do not be silent. During some of the seasons of my heart, it seemed as though my entire life is one long Emmaus journey. The God who walks beside me remains so hidden and silent. A stranger walks with me rather than a friend. Yet slowly, as the seasons change, I move from doubting the presence of the Holy One in my life to a deep assurance that God in Jesus is comfortingly near. The beloved stranger sits at my table and eats of my bread. The sharing of this bread breaks the silence. A wordless song becomes a melody of divine presence. O God, whom I praise, do not be silent, I cry. Yet there is no sound, 
no voice, no word. Only the echo of a very old word, older than you and me, older than Jesus, Yahweh. I do not know if you are near. Yahweh, is that what they called you when they were first trying to find you? Were you the one riding the winds, stirring the waters, lifting flesh out of the earth? O God, whom I praise, do not be silent, I cry. Yet the sound is so distant, the voice is so faint, the word is so old, older than you and me, older than Jesus. Yahweh, I think you are near. Yahweh, is that what they called you when you were uprooting them from their lands? Were you the one calling Abraham and Sarah, arguing with Moses, wrestling with Jacob? O God, whom I praise, do not be silent, I cry. And the sound becomes a song. The voice becomes a word. The word becomes flesh, the flesh of Jesus, the flesh of you and me. Yahweh, I know you are near. Yahweh, is that what we call you when your presence defies all description? Are you the stranger who walks beside us, makes a dwelling place in us, sits at our table? Yahweh, I know you are near. All right, friends, if you want to make your way back to your seats, that'd be great. So good to see you all. My name's Micah, if we have not met. I am one of the pastors in our little community called Awaken. Proud, glad, grateful to be serving as one. Uh, Before we jump into the teaching this morning, a couple things we want to just remind you of by way of community life. Uh, If you don't, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our Awaken Weekly. It goes out well, weekly. Uh, You can do so online. And uh, coming soon uh, will be our fall offering. So uh, if you've been around, we've been trying to kind of do this quarterly because so much changes uh, in the world. And uh, we're trying to plan for what we kind of maybe sort of know what will happen in the next three months. Um, So our fall offerings will be coming out soon. Uh, Staff have been working really hard to continue to provide opportunities for you to grow and get to know each other and, um, and serve in the church. So uh, keep an eye on that, and if you don't subscribe to that and are interested, please do. Uh, Secondly, there is a practical care team that we have at Awaken, and uh, the church, the business of the church goes on, whether we're here or not here, and so people are having babies, and um, people are heading to the hospital, uh, people are moving, all kinds of things, you know, um, where you might call the church and say, hey, need a hand. Um, And so that typically is you all. Um, led by some of our folks on staff or volunteers, but it's, it's people like you 
uh, who show up to help move or who make meals or who visit folks in the hospital. Um, and so we're, we would love to continue to offer that, um, and we just need some people who are willing to do that. So if you are open, um, maybe to one or more of those uh, potential opportunities, whether it's making a meal or seeing somebody or helping somebody move or whatnot, writing a card. Somebody wrote a handwritten card to us the other day. It's like, oh my gosh, right? So great. So if you're interested in that, practical care team. Um, you can find that online under the serving tab and sign up for that if you're interested. And last, before we jump in, this is a this is kind of one of those ones where it's like, oh, you hate to be the bearer of bad news, um, but I'm, I am the bearer of maybe disappointing news this morning, and that is um, we have been planning for September 19th as kind of our fall kickoff, where our hope was to kind of, you know, uh, do what we do, which includes kids' community. And um, with the uncertainty of the world we live in and variants and all that, um, some folks just aren't comfortable being here yet, and we respect that and want to honor that. And, um, and also, you know, with kids not being able to be vaccinated, there's all these layers of um, uncertainty. And um, quite frankly, that was just driving Mandy um, crazy, trying to figure out how to plan for this. And so um, we've just decided as a staff that this fall um, through probably Christmas, we're not going to have kids' community downstairs. Um, one, and most importantly, we just don't have the volunteers to do it. Um, and that's okay. We recognize that. Like, we're not, this isn't me beating anyone up or shaming anyone, um, but just being honest with the reality. We cannot do kids' community um, the way we want to do it and the way we're committed to doing it without loving and caring volunteers who do that. And so, um, Mandy is working hard with a team of people to put together um, options for families. Um, so, uh, the boxes that you all were getting throughout the summer. Um, we're going to try to keep those going and um, have those available for you to do things with kids at home. That being said, like if you are brave and you want to bring your kids to church with you and sit in the pews, like bring them, okay? Like as a community, can we just agree that we're going to be okay with a, a kid that loses it in our midst? So parents, I know you feel like everyone's watching you and everybody hates you. We're not and we don't, okay? So bring your kids and, you know, there's space available. If, if a kiddo needs some alone time, uh, we're going to do that. So um, there we go. All right, so we're in this together, and we'll just keep trying to do the best we can. Sound good? Okay. Um, that's over. Let's move on, Jenna. First Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We're in week four of a series called Proximate. Paul the Apostle writes a whole bunch of letters to a whole bunch of churches in the ancient world, and he's encouraging them, admonishing them, inviting them to hold central the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, this way of being human in the world that Jesus offers to us. So, as we come back together, we believe Paul might have something for us to say. Um, we have so far looked at, in Corinthians, um, Paul's uh, mentioning and, and talking about gifting and spiritual gifts and how the Spirit of God gifts the church diversely. Um, and we celebrate that, and we find our unity not in our sameness of gifting or even our sameness of belief on every matter, but rather in Christ, and that Christ's Spirit has gifted the church to do and be what we've called, been called to do and be. So um, we looked at being comfort, that as we experience comfort, we then become comfort agents, ambassadors of comfort, as it were, um, which is beautiful. Um, I was talking to somebody in the back in between gatherings, and he's experienced this like super rare, bizarre heart thing and headed to Mayo. And it just so happens that the guy he was talking to, he's like, oh my gosh, I work for Mayo. Would you believe that? And I'm like, yep. I totally would. Happens all the time around here. <laughs> um, you become comfort. And so there it is happening right there in the lobby, right? Um, 
And then last week we looked at generosity. What does it mean to be a generous community? We're followers of Jesus who is always doing this, right? And even though our world is doing this and inviting us to do this, we're still people who follow Jesus and we're still the church. So how do we lean into that? This week I want to talk about the Eucharist. It comes from a Greek word, you and charis, good gift, the Lord's table, communion. Um, it is one of the two sacraments that the Protestant church celebrates. I don't know if you know this or not. Uh, Catholic church celebrates seven. Protestant church communion and the Eucharist, uh, or excuse me, baptism and communion. Um, if you didn't know, there are a bunch of windows in this building for eight Beatitudes of Matthew, two missionaries. And then this, my friends, is the seven sacraments of the Catholic church. Three on this side, three on this side, and then one in the middle, which is communion, Eucharist, Right? It's beautiful. It's important. It always has been a part of the church. Um, So that's what we want to talk about today. And I don't know what your experience with communion was like um, growing up, but mine was pretty much boring. Uh, I grew up in a pretty conservative church, and uh, we called it Suits Sunday. Um, There would appear an altar in the front of the church with a giant mountain of metal, you know, silver metal platters, you know, this cascading thing. We're like, wow, that's impressive. I wonder how much that costs. But there they were, the chiclets and the little cups of juice, and uh, the suits would come up, you know, just like the Matrix, just a row of suits, men in suits. And they would come up, and the pastor would do his thing and, you know, say all the things, and then he would de- deconstruct the mountain of metal, and the, the suits would come out, and they would hand, they would pass the plates down the aisle, and you'd take your chiclet, hang on to it, though, take your chiclet, and then the, the cups would come. You grab that, which, you know, was just a disaster for kids. It's like those things, they're so, hard, they're so easy to drop. Um, so that would happen, and then the pastor would say something about the body of Christ broken for you, and everybody would, like, take the chiclet and try not to crunch it. You know, they're, like, gumming the chiclet, trying to make, not... And, and this, everything's happening in dead silence, because it is a very serious matter. You know what I'm saying? So the person down the row who didn't get the memo on the crunching is just going for it. And then, you, you know, the body, the blood of Christ shed for you, and you'd take the cup. And then, inevitably, some kid would, like, crack the cup. And those things are loud. Can I get an amen on that? Those things are loud. And all this was just in dead silence. You know, it's very serious. It's a big deal. No screwing around, kids. And that's pretty much what I thought of communion growing up. It's like, this is really boring and really hard to sit through. Um, and then when I went to college, I had one experience that sort of, um, it marked my my relationship to communion in a way um, where, you know, all-day worship gathering, that's what you do at Christian colleges. You just get everybody together and bring your gym bays and your guitars, and somebody starts singing, and so there we are in the little chapel at CCU, and we're singing, and then the table, right, the, the communion. And for whatever reason that day, like, something clicked, and I was completely overwhelmed by what was happening. That, like, this bread... Simple, every day, and juice. I went to a Christian school. No drinking on campus, kids. They, like, somehow carried the message, the reality, the the presence of the divine. And in this moment, I just began to weep. And overwhelmed with God's presence and love and kindness and care and compassion. And I'll never forget it, you know. Uh, And to this day, communion for me... Uh, I really appreciate it, and I value it, but it's never been, like, the center of my spiritual experience. And for some people, this, the table is, like, especially liturgical churches, like, this is the center of worship every single week, right? 
So there are lots of different experiences and, um, well, even views and beliefs about communion. And I just want to say, like, wherever you walk into this morning, welcome. We are so glad you're here. And whatever experience you bring with you, thoughts, feelings, opinions, beliefs, they are welcome too. Um, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because Paul has a word for this church about communion. The very, the very way in which they were doing this, um, Paul's a little upset about it. So we're going to look at that because I hope we can gain some insight on why it's so important for Paul. And why he's so upset about the way in which this church is doing communion. So that's where we're headed. If you can, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of the word. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. He, reads, he writes this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. That's a bummer, you know. It's like, get behind me, Satan. That's a bad day. This is a bad day. Uh, you're, for your meetings, do more harm than good. When you get together, it's more harmful than it is good. That's what he says to them. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been, or there, no doubt, there have to be differences among you to show you which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the cup, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we lean into this story, which seems so far away and so long ago, and yet here we are, a little church in our neck of the woods, ready, preparing ourselves to come to this table. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you might speak a word of life to us, encouragement, even admonishment. We're open. Uh, we hold our hands, our palms open, and our hearts to the degree that we can and invite you uh, to speak, to build us up, inv- uh, encourage us to be the kinds of people you, you know we can be by your Spirit. So we pray this in the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, the church said together, amen. You may be seated. Corinth. A church a lot like ours. They didn't meet in a Walmart converted to a giant stadium with seats 5,000 people. They just met in homes. They were a small group of people trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus in the world that they lived in. And so Paul writes to them, and Paul is upset. He is upset about the way that they are acting and participating in this event called the Lord's Table. Communion. So why is Paul upset and why is communion so important? This is the million-dollar question. And to answer that question, I submit to you the following. Paul is upset and mad because the story that Jesus connects what we now know communion to be is a story that's all about liberation. It's a story about liberation from all the ways that humans, um, human relationships are out of order. It's a story about liberation from oppression and slavery and all the ways that we make hierarchies of value and grade people based on race and class and gender. It's a story about liberation being set free from the ways that we act towards and with one another that are less than what God hoped for and intended. 
So Jesus in the upper room, when he's with his disciples, is connecting what we know, the Last Supper, about communion. He's connecting that to another story. And that story, my friends, is about liberation. Liberation from all the ways that we as humans live out of order, disordered with one another. And the way in which the Corinthian church was participating and celebrating this table, which Jesus connects to a story about liberation, was actually the very opposite. It, it, it held up these values that the world has of grading one another and oppression and dominance and power over instead of support under. The very nature and the way in which the Corinthian church was doing this thing, which was about liberation from all those things, enforced them instead of critiqued them. So when you come to the table and you participate in communion, this act is a prophetic act saying that is not the way, but this is the way. However, the, the world is disordered and we use each other to get ahead and we push people down to make ourselves feel better. However, that's happening out in the world. This thing is critiquing that. And so when you come in such a way that that's not true, you can see why Paul might be upset. Tracking so far? So, I want to go on a journey this morning. I want to go back to the Jewish Passover. I want to go to the upper room. And I want to go to the church in Corinth. And then I want to come back to Awaken. Okay, this sermon is called Four Cups, the Upper Room, and a Sponge. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by his friends, Judas, his friend, friend uh, Judas, um, he's in a room with his disciples celebrating a meal. And we call that meal the Last Supper. You've probably seen this painting from Leonardo da Vinci. A uh, very prominent role in the Da Vinci Code. Great movie, by the way, Tom Hanks. Um, and this is picturing this moment where Jesus is with his friends the last night uh, that he was, before he was crucified, eating what would be their last meal together. Um, what we don't know, as maybe you do, but what I didn't know as a Protestant Christian, is that this meal is a very familiar meal for a Jewish person. The meal that Jesus was participating in before it was called the Last Supper was actually called the Passover. A meal that a Jewish child growing up in a Jewish home or a Jewish teacher would have celebrated every single year of their life. A meal that was liturgical, a meal that was scripted, a meal that was very... Uh, and it goes all the way back to the story of the Exodus when God sends Moses into Egypt to liberate the Israelites from oppression and slavery. It came to be known as the Seder meal. Seder in Hebrew means order, because this meal is very ordered and clear, scripted. Readings and prayers and blessings and songs. It comes from the word Passover, Pesach in Hebrew, which means to skip or omit or pass over, right? Here's my connections. Jesus is in a room with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. But that Last Supper was actually about the Passover. And that Passover story is actually about the Exodus story. And the Exodus story is actually about liberation. So you can see how Jesus, as he inserts himself into this story, is interested in liberation. Liberation from power, from the abuse of power, from dominance from slavery, from dehumanizing ways of being human, for ways in which we create hierarchies of value and judge one another. Now what happens in the upper room with Jesus and this scripted meal that everybody would have known what was next is the real head snapper. Because Jesus does something in the middle of this that is like, ah, uh, you're forgetting a very important part. So let's go there. Uh, this meal, the Passover, scripted, liturgical, would have been celebrated hundreds of years 
uh, central to the meal, central to the story, central to the script were four cups. The Mishnah, which is a Jewish text, says this, On the eve of Passover, from about the time of evening offering, a man must not eat until nightfall. Even the poorest in Israel must not eat unless he sits at the table, the Passover table. And they, who are sitting at the Passover table, must not be given less than four cups of wine. It's a good night. It's going to be a good night. So four cups. Um, If you're interested, there's a book called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Eucharist, which I uh, used quite heavily for the, my, my prep for this, it's by a guy named Brant Petrie, Petrie. Can you imagine if your name was Petrie? You know, that's a real obvious setup, you know, for the playground. Here comes the Petrie dish. Um, P-I-T-R-E, Petrie. Maybe he doesn't pronounce it that way as to avoid the jokes that would surely come. Either way, Jesus and the Jewish roots of Eucharist. Get it on the rails, Micah. Four cups. The first cup is the cup that they call Kiddush, and it means sanctification. So before the meal would begin, or as the meal is begin, the first cup of wine is mixed. It's uh, brought to the Father, and the Father would offer a blessing. And this blessing was very normal. It was very natural. They would have heard it before. It begins Shabbat, same blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. And this blessing would kick off. It would begin the ceremony, as it were. Um, and after which, the elements of the, the meal would be brought out. At least these four things, sometimes others, but at least these four things. Unleavened bread, bitter herbs, a sort of sauce or, um, yeah, like horserad. Uh, well, it's called haroseth, and it sort of reminded them of the, the mortar that they would lay uh, in the bricks in Egypt. And then the Passover lamb. So those four things. Now, my grandpa Elmer was not Jewish. Um, we called him Elmo. May you rest in peace. Uh, When I was a kid, we would go to my grandma's house because my parents had five children, and evidently cooking for five children all the time is a real labor. And so my grandma was like, hey, Claudette, how about Monday nights you just bring the crew over and I'll cook. So we'd go to grandma, grandpa Elmer's, and grandma Jeannie's house, and um, inevitably, The meal would be brought out, we would sit down at the table, and Grandpa Elmer would begin with the same prayer every single time. I texted my brothers this morning, I'm like, does anybody remember the actual prayer that he prayed? I'm still waiting for an answer. Had a lot of these and thous and thys, and and it was the same, the exact same thing every single time. And it was like clockwork, you know, like something in your body sort of settled in that moment because you knew that, like, okay, dinner has begun This is the power of liturgy, by the way. Our bodies just kind of relax into whatever it is that we're doing. So Elmo would begin, this is the first cup. This is the blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. It's Elmo's prayer. And it would begin the Passover meal. A second cup was called the Haggadah, uh, which means proclamation. And that was given and mixed. And this was a bit of a setup, right? Um, we knew that if we, if we baited Grandpa Elmer, he would eventually tell a story that we've all heard 50 times as if he had never told it before. You know how older folks do that sometimes and you, you just kind of like, it's, it's endearing, it's lovely, it's beautiful. He would always tell us about how you say uh, thank you very much in Japanese. He served in World War II. Don managato We're all like, oh my gosh, Grandpa, settle down. Or he'd tell us about, you know, Nome, Alaska and flying planes up there. Or this one time when he got, you know, shot at in the B-52 bomber. They, but we knew them all, you know. And we could set him up. We could lead him down this path and he would take the bait every time. 
the child in the home would say to the father, Father, why on this night? Why is this night different than all the other nights? Why on this night do we eat season, things that are seasoned twice instead of just once? Why on this night do we eat unleavened bread instead of leavened bread? Why on this night do we eat uh, the lamb that's only prepared this way when other nights we eat it all kinds of other ways? And that would be the setup. That's the bait, and the father would take it. And he would begin to tell to proclaim the story of the Exodus from that. Deuteronomy chapter 26, about how God sent Moses and rescued the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt and brought them out of there, liberated them from slavery and oppression, and brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey, and invited them to be this kind of people in the world. And it sort of set up the retelling of the story. And this was the heart and soul of the meal, friends. This is why they were gathered. And this happened year after year, generation after generation, long before they ever wrote it down, this continued to go on over and over and over and over again. Brad Petrie, Petrie, the Petrie disc, writes this. He says, no matter how many centuries had passed by explaining the meaning of the meal, each person was somehow made capable of sharing in the redemption one in the Exodus. Isn't that powerful? When we tell, st- tell stories that matter, They invite the listener to enter the story, even if they weren't a part of the story. It's like traditions and and family lineage and things that you value. This is the power of story. And so because of what was heard and and the, the, the gratitude that would have welled up, they were bound to give thanks to God, and they would do so by singing psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. At this portion, it's Psalm 113 and 114, a hallel, a blessing, which would be the third cup. So after the second cup is born, the meal is brought out, and you would sing the song of blessing, you'd drink the third cup of wine, and that was the beginning of the meal. When the third cup was blessed, it was like, let's eat. And there's a lot of variation, actually, in terms of like what happens next, depending on culture and what Jewish family or what synagogue you went to or what other things would be on the table. But the point is that the meal would commence and people would begin to eat. And finally, the last cup, the fourth cup, was the cup of praise, Hallel. Um, we just watched the Olympics, right? You know, and at the Olympics, to begin the ceremonies, there is an opening ceremony, and everybody knows, like, this is the official start of the Olympics. This is the first cup of wine. And the last cup of wine, the fourth cup, is the closing ceremony. Everybody knows that when that wine is drunk, it's over. Passover has happened, and we have done it. And the fourth cup was about the wine, but it was also, before the wine was drunk, it was about the songs, the psalms that were sung. Psalm 115 to 118, the final of which is known as the Great Hallel. It reads this way, and imagine Jesus in his upper room with his friends singing this, out of my distress I called to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. I shall not die, but I shall live. Recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me sorely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The final Hallel. So after singing the Psalm 118, the fourth cup of wine would be drunk. And according to the Mishnah, by the way, between cup three and cup four, no wine could be drunk. It's a very serious deal. Like, no, no sips, no, no, no pit stops. So these are the four cups of the Jewish Seder meal. Now let's head back to the upper room. In Luke chapter 22, we read this. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 
After taking the cup, he gave thanks. He blessed it. And he said, remember, it's a Passover meal. This, take this, divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took a cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. How many cups do we have in Luke 22? Two. Luke makes it very clear that one's before dinner and one's after dinner. So if you are looking at a Jewish Passover meal, what cups have you seen? Cup two and cup three. After the second cup is blessed, notice Jesus even begins to tell them about the breaking of his body, the bread, in the Mishnah, the Passover lamb. Any guesses as to what it's called? The body. What is Jesus doing here? He's literally inserting himself into this story the Passover, which is about the Exodus, which is about liberation, as if he's trying to say that there is a new Exodus happening and a new liberation that I am offering you. Now, to keep this case going that I'm building, look at what you see in Matthew and Mark. They tell us in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, both of them are on the screen here. He took the cup, he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it all of you, we've heard this before. And look at what it says at the end there. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So after the third cup and the singing of the blessing, they leave the room. This is the head scratcher. This is the what? Hang on. The thing's not, it's not over yet. We can't leave. We've been sitting at this meal, and there's four cups, and we've only had three. It's like Jesus knows the Passover isn't over. And if you notice, if you remember in the story, he's offered wine along the way, and he denies it. In Matthew, uh, I think it's 26, well, before that, in Matthew 26, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, Peter, James, and John fall asleep, and he's praying, and what does he pray for? Father, would you take this cup from me? And then if you keep going in the story, Matthew 27, he actually denies, he's offered wine, and he doesn't drink it, because you can't drink wine before the third and the fourth, until it's over. And in John chapter 19, we read this. Later, knowing that everyone had been finished, or that everything had now been finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was put there, soaked in a sponge, and the sponge on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he received the drink, what did he say? It is finished. This Passover meal is over. What has Jesus done He's taken what we call the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, and he said, I am the Passover lamb. I am the body which will be given for you. A, a lamb that had to be killed every year, generation after generation, is now me, which will only be done this time and then never again. So that the exodus, a liberation from what? All the things that they used to deal with then? And all the things that we still struggle with today. The ways in which we do this to one another, and we create hierarchies of power, and we grade and value one another based on our race, class, gender, orientation, all the ways that our relationships are out of order. And Jesus says, I'm offering you the same exodus. I, there is a new exodus happening and a new liberation happening, and it's right here, friends. And it's now over. Why is Paul mad at the Corinthians? Because they come up to this table, and some of them have plenty, and other of them have, have need, have want, and those with plenty don't care. 
they just keep eating and drinking. In fact, to, to drunkenness. They come to this table, which is about liberation, which is about being set free from all of the ways that the world tells you the world should be ordered, and they're just doing it as if nothing is different. Like, Jesus has not liberated, liberated them from anything. So you can imagine why Paul is so mad, because he's like, people, do you understand what has happened? Do you understand that Jesus was the Passover lamb who says it's done, it's over, it's finished, and now what's offered to you is liberation, freedom from all the ways that you're actually living as if nothing has changed. So when you come to this table, which is about freedom and about being set free and about liberation, and you live as enslaved people, as if you can't challenge that, can't speak a prophetic word to that, can't critique that, you, something is off. And so Paul is like, people, this is a big deal. So there is a, 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 a sense of like soberness that one must have when you come to this table. Which is why I think people say, like, an invitation before you come to the table to seek, Lord, seek my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me, says the psalmist. Because I don't want to come to this table as if I haven't been liberated, as if nothing has changed, as if I'm still a slave to all of the things that the world says I am a slave to. So we hold it with seriousness and somberness, but we also hold it with joy. Why? Because this table is open for everybody, anybody. And anyone who wants it, who says, you know what, I don't really appreciate or like the fact that I feel enslaved and oppressed and I, I need to be set free from some things in my life. So Jesus says, come. If you're interested in that story, then that's the one I'm telling. So to the church called awake, and I say to you this morning, how do you come to this table? If Paul is all bent out of shape because the Corinthians are coming to the table as if Jesus has liberated them from nothing... How do you come? Do you believe that story? Do you believe that that isn't just a story, but that that actually happened, that Jesus was who he said he was, and that he's offering to you and to me liberation and freedom from all the ways that we are out of order with one another? And if you believe that, then come and participate in that. Literally, eat the bread and drink the wine. Let it fill your body, and then go out into the world and offer it to those who are interested in hearing it. That, my friends, is gospel. That's good news. And that is what this table is all about. So today, as we prepare for it, I'll give you a few moments to think about that, to consider that, to let that well up inside of you, to let that sink in, that this is not just bread and wine, but somehow mysteriously carries, communicates, offers the presence of the living God, not the God who was dead in a tomb, but the one who was resurrected from the dead who says, come and follow me. So pray with me. God, this morning as we take a moment to consider the words of the preacher and what your spirit is doing in this moment right now, to the degree that we can, we open our hearts. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would bring us to clarity, that the lights would be turned on, and that if there be any ways in which we're living that that hold up the assumptions of the world and the empire and the kingdoms of this world that we live in and don't offer critique to it, God, convict us, show us, so that we might repent, so that we might turn and go a different direction, saying, no, this table is about liberation, and I have been set free, and I want to live in that reality. Not as if it didn't happen, but 
believing that it did and that it is and that it will happen. So Holy Spirit, speak to us now, I pray. In just a moment, I'll invite you to come to the Lord's table. Um, Just logistically speaking, so this is as ordered as possible, Uh, we'll invite you to come from the side aisles, make your way up to the front. There's two hand sanitizing stations. We'd ask that you grab a little of that. And then you'll be offered bread and wine or juice. We'd invite you to take the bread and dip it in the cup. There's red wine and white juice. They're both labeled. The bread's gluten-free. Um, And you'll hear the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And then we invite you, except for you folks over here, make your way back to your seats through the center aisle. Um, Usually we offer honey sticks for our kiddos, and um, Miss Mandy or somebody will be at the door as you leave. And so if you're interested in that, um, they will offer those to your kiddos on the way out. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said... This is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it and said, This is my blood which is shed for you. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. At Awaken, we like to remind people that this is the table not of the church. We don't own it. I don't own it. I am not the one who gets to decide who comes to it. It is the table of the Lord. So it's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have a lot of faith, a little bit of faith, not much faith at all, you who have been here often or not for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, if you want it, come and be filled. Receive the good gift, the Eucharist, and then be sent into the world to do the same. These are some of my favorite Sundays when it's cool enough and the doors are open and like what happens in here and whatever transcendence and imminence you experience and feel, it's like it just rolls out of church doors. And I hope and I pray that that's what happens next. That as you leave this place, however you came in here this morning, maybe for the most part, you've been participating in a story that is antithetical to this table and what Jesus says it's about. And I would just say to you, stop. Go the other way. Participate in this. Be a part of this. Where your life is good gift. It's Eucharist to your neighbor and your coworker and your family. Just say yes and do it. Start walking. to those who have said yes already that you would leave this place and that you would be Eucharist good gift to the world to how you practice law how you deliver the mail how you parent your children how you operate and work on people's teeth and do people's taxes that in you they would find Christ good news amen the Lord bless you and keep you Lord, lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, full and ready for the mission. Amen? Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. See you, well, when I get back from the Camino (laughs) in a couple weeks. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.